The Weigel Cast is part of the Hashtag Pressing Program, presented by GE. Welcome to another episode of Slate's interview podcast, The Weigel Cast. I'm Slate's political reporter, Dave Weigel, and my guest this week is Congressman Keith Ellison. In 2006, he became the first Muslim member of the House. In 2011, Ellison testified what was supposed to be the first of several hearings on quote-unquote Muslim extremism. Ellison's defense of Muslim Americans was so compelling that the hearings basically stopped. I sat down with Ellison to talk about his upbringing in Detroit, about the progress American Muslims have made, and about how the war on terror needs to end. The first thing I want to ask about, Democrats have agreed to actually participate in the Benghazi Select Committee. We've talked before about whether that's a legitimate thing for Republicans to be investigating. When Peter King had the <laughs> his, his committee investigating Muslim extremism, quote-unquote, uh, the fact that you participated in that in the way you did ended up changing the, the narrative. Do you think Democrats yeah. are, can do the same thing with this committee? Yeah, I, I'm one of those people who believes that you've got to be part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that Speaker Pelosi, uh, our leader, changed her mind and decided to send our folks down there. Because, look, you know, they could try to drag in people, members of the administration, including Hillary Clinton. They could get up to a lot of shenanigans. And I think that at the end of the day, you need somebody there who's going to counteract and push back on that. Um, I mean, the fact is, you know, as much as we want to wish away uh, these destructive, distracting tactics of the Republicans, you know, we, we've, we've got to stay in the fight and we've got to not only fight, but appear to be fighting, too. Is there anything legitimate to be discovered? There's nothing to learn. This is okay. complete. This is political theater, 100 percent. I think this lessens Trey Gowdy. I think he's been sent on a fool's errand and he shouldn't have taken it, but he did. The number of hearings is on briefings on this thing has been in the is has been in what, ten, twenty, thirty. I mean this thing has been worked over plenty. You know, if Republicans hadn't hadn't tried to cut uh, you know, budgets for overseas security, we might not be in the situation. If Republicans are now willing to spend the money to do proper security at embassies around the world and safeguard our uh our diplomatic staff, maybe that's a good thing. And what – getting back to drones, I, I think, what would you like to see America's policy be in it, when it comes to drone warfare? The administration is going to release more information, they say, about legal justifications for uh, the Alawaki killing. What is your position? I think that um, the authorization for use of force that came out of uh, the – uh, right in the on the heels of 9/11 cannot serve as a legal basis for drone wars being carried out now. I think it's far too attenuated in time and distance. I mean, what does that have to do with what's happening in Yemen, Somalia, places like that? I think that uh, that we should repeal the AUMF, uh, and uh, it, it's because I think its usefulness has 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 gone out. You know, we can't. I don't think we should confuse technology with what our policy should be. In fact, I think that we're literally doing things now because we can, not because we've thought about how this technology could be used, not or the implications of it or how it might be used against us or how another country might use it against a discrete minority in that country. I mean, I mean, what if Russia was killing the Chechens with drones the way we're doing this in in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Yemen and in Somalia? Might we start raising human rights concerns? We, I think we probably would. I mean, I mean, I think that we've that we've got to get a hand on the technology uh, and put a policy around it that makes it 
so that it's being used in a humane, justifiable way. Ban the use of Jones for political assassination. They should be used with the uh, with the permission of the country that it's being used in per agreement, except for in the very limited situation where there is an imminent threat to life uh, uh, involving U.S. U.S. forces or U.S. personnel. So we should we should not go into anyone's territory unless we have their permission, unless it's a it's a necessity to save life in the media, in the short term. But would that if it wasn't a drone? But would that would the Bin Laden operation have been covered under that? That wasn't. I mean, well, that I think that is a somewhat of a unique situation. I think that there are situations where you can't just come up with a rule that applies in every single situation. But I also think that if if we can safely arrest people and make them stand trial, they should. I mean, we're in a situation now when it comes to drones, when we, we haven't really thought about how much collateral damage is too much. We haven't thought about um, how we verify that the person being targeted is actually the person we're looking for. You know, uh, I am one of those people who believes that America, my country that I live in, should act justly and morally and right, even if you need to use force uh, to defend the country. And I think that the way we're using it is is more a matter of uh, capacity rather than rather than uh, actual justification. We'll get back to my interview with Congressman Keith Ellison in a moment. The Wycocast is part of the Hashtag Pressing program presented by GE. Hashtag Pressing is working with some of the country's best news organizations to bring you thoughtful discussions of policy, not heated arguments about politics. I'd like to thank GE for making the program possible. And now back to my talk with the congressman. I want to ask a little bit about uh, progressive domestic policy. I mean, you represent Minnesota now, but you're, you're from Detroit originally. Yeah, born in Detroit. Detroit's often used as an example by Republicans, by conservatives, as an example of why progressivism does not work. <laughs> point, they point to that city and say— They couldn't be, wrong. They couldn't be more wrong. Well, start with that. Why are they, why are they wrong about that? Well, because uh, if you want to talk about what happened to Detroit, let's start with the fact that— uh, uh, in my opinion, Ford, GM, and Chrysler our auto plants were given a whole lot of support uh, by the American people, and yet uh, their primary consideration at all times was just to make more money. In my view, GM in particular only ne- never did did the right thing by force and did the wrong thing by choice. You know, they were perfectly happy to let the uh, the, the collateral damage just be in their wake. And I mean, even at the very end, they're coming us for you know twenty five billion dollars to save them. When did they ever make the cars more fuel efficient? Did they ever try to make them safer? What did they ever do? I mean, maybe at the very end they started trying to get their act together. But when they could have, when they had the comfort to make a more fuel efficient, better car, did they? No, they made a more expensive car that they could sell. I mean, that's my take on it. And right now, do you think that there, are, I guess, businesses, banks exploiting what's happening with Detroit right now? It's in. Uh, the emer- uh, emergency status, I'll call it, because it's the emergency manager who's right. running the city right now. I saw, you know, Jamie Dimon's pledging money <laughs> to to build some things or another, but most of the debt they're claiming, or the obligation they're claiming, are the pension funds, right? Which averages nineteen thousand dollars a year, whichever that that, and which I think hedge funds <laughs> may make make a pretty good profit. Yeah, if they, if they negotiate, do you, do you fear any exploitation? Absolutely, I think I think Detroiters need to be very much on guard for what happens to the pension funds. I mean, we're talking about people who are, who just got a little bit of, of a pensions, so and they're, they're not talking about anybody living large in Detroit on their pensions. And these are the people who should be protected absolutely first. 
quite frankly, Detroit should have a bailout, and I think Detroiters should be demanding one. I mean, how could we how could we bail out AIG and Goldman Sachs and Bank of America for bad behavior, irresponsible behavior? And Detroit, it's just a place where people live. I do think that Detroiters, and I'm a Detroiter, right? I mean, I'm a Minneapolisan now, but mm-hmm. I grew up in Detroit. I think people in Detroit really do need to say, you look, is our population of about 600,000 just too big for this city that we live in? That was built to be gigantic. For, for, yeah. for 1.5 million. I mean, maybe there is some, you know, maybe there is a lot of sense to trying to, you know, reforest Detroit, you know? It would require some people moving off of a block where they're the only one on the block to a more densely populated area and nobody wants to be displaced. But I think that, uh, that, uh, you know, the pensioners have to be looked out for. I think, uh, Detroit has to be, uh, taking, uh, has to be bailed out. And I think that there's by, a lot by, by... by the American people. And I, and I, and I think that there's a lot of other cities that are, that are in, that are close to the situation Detroit's in. And if we, and we're going to be seeing this more, and I think we need to start thinking about how we create some solutions for Detroit. I think what you really need to not to do is not deprive people of their say over who leads them. You need to intensify the engagement. Because I think if you bring people this real deal, this is how much money we're taking in. This is how much money we're spending out. We could save. If we could stop the bleed, we could, you know, provide these services. We could do these things. But, you know, we really haven't had a real tough conversation in Detroit. Certainly isn't progressive politics that got Detroit in this situation. It's actually, uh, you know, corporatism and uh, unbridled, uh, you know, I think greed. Now, why don't Democrats run more confidently in more places saying things like that? If they talk about taxes, they talk about, well, getting rid of some tax breaks for corporations that are doing this or that malfeasance. What's the resistance in the Democratic Party to running on, the, on the, that agenda? Because it does poll well. I mean, what do you hear when, you, when somebody's running in one of these in more of a swing seat, maybe running statewide Minnesota? Yeah. Why don't they run on expensive security or why don't they run on protecting pensions? Because they're told, got to be, be serious on, on policy. You, gotta cut, you have to talk about cutting these, these gross public worker pensions. Well, Paul Wellstone ran on a progressive agenda yeah. and won. Elizabeth Warren ran on a progressive agenda and won. Bill de Blasio won on a progressive agenda and won. My own mayor, uh, Betsy Hodges, ran on that same agenda and won. I think progressive politics are winning politics. So why don't we use them more? Well, you know, I can tell you that, you know, you, we're, we're on the phone. We're, we're, we spend hours a day raising money. And it's common for a member of Congress to be in a conversation about fundraising when uh, the, the, the donor will say, oh, yeah, well, how would your position on this issue that I care about? Now, that issue is probably going to be self-serving, but everybody knows that the answers are going to de- the answers to the policy question might affect the fundraising question. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, it, of course, no, no, no one but the biggest fool in the world is going to say, yes, I will do this if you do that. That's illegal. And people in it, the game's not really played that way. But there's no doubt that if you get out there and you take a position that some business interest likes, they're the ones who are going to be running to hold that event for you. If, but, but who's going to run to do an event for you if you say you want to raise the minimum wage, right? Well, nobody, you know, because the people who need the minimum wage to go up don't have the money to give you. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things like this, but at the end of the day, I think it's the corrosive, ugly effect of money and politics 
that has gotten us to the point where our, our public policy uh, as put in place by our public officials does not really reflect the uh, majority opinion of the American people. But progressives, the Democrats should run on this anyway. They should run on should run on Medicaid anyway because it's going to win because okay. it's winning politics. It's how you succeed. I mean, and, and by the way, you know, there's a whole lot of people who are well-to-do who love this country and believe that businesses should have responsibility for what they do to the environment, for how they affect local communities, right? So I'm not alone in this. You know, this is actually, I think, a pretty balanced, even-handed position. You know, uh, uh, I don't think of myself as any kind of a, a radical. I think it just makes sense. You know, what what's really crazy is that somebody uh, can, I don't know, like Goldman Sachs got in a little bit of trouble because they went and got they asked for all the the worst mortgages, the ones that were non-performing and weren't going to pay. They bundled them into a mortgage-backed securitization. Then they uh, got rating agencies to say it was AAA. They were happy to oblige. And then they took out credit default swaps against them, which is basically insurance. And then they told the investors that it was good stuff. And then when the thing hit the fan, like it was, of course, going to, they went and said to the insurance company that issued them the CDS, pay me. And if, when the insurer said, I don't have it, they said, well, you go ask John Q. Public for the money. And, and, and guess what? John Q. Public ponied up. So, I mean, that's to me is radical. <laughs> you know, that to me is outrageous. Nobody went to jail behind that. There was some fines uh, that were levied. But guess what? You know, the, the amount of money that was made off of these kind of frauds is overwhelms the fine like you know, enormously to the point where the fine is nothing but a cost of doing business. And that happened many other times. I mean, there are all kinds of stories like that all over, and no one gets held accountable for it. The American people know that. The American people know that corporate profits are at an all-time high and, and the minimum wage is at a 40-year low. They know it. Even if they don't know the number, they feel it, and they're sick of it. And the question is, are we going to do the patriotic thing and do what's right for the American people. I, I think we need to. I think we have to. We, If we say that if you work hard and you play by the rules, you're going to make it, we live in a society evermore where if you work hard and play by the rules, you're going to have staggering debt and low wages and live a life where all you can hope to do is survive. This is not America. This is not the country we love, but we have to do something about it. Okay, cool. Thanks for talking to me about this. All right. And that's it for Wigglecast this week. Thanks to our producer, Alexis Diao, to Slate's senior producer, Mike Volo, and to the executive producer of Slate Podcast, Andy Bowers. I'm Dave Weigel, and I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.